You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Hi, welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Weijan Shan, who is the founder and head of PAG, which is a private equity group based out of Hong Kong, and also a former professor at the Wharton School and a former student, PhD student at UC Berkeley. And of course, the author of a couple fantastic books, most recent of which is this one called Money Games and another one called Out of Gobi. So in addition to being a very successful investor, a researcher, you're also a fantastic writer. These are books that were un put downable for me and perhaps my interest as a historian and as a finance person make me unusual, but I certainly found them to be unput downable. Welcome, Wei Chan. Thank you very much for having me. So good to see you. When I read books like Money Games, and I read a lot of books like this, I think most academics don't read these kinds of, of books. I've been reading these since when I was in graduate school, I would read Barbarians at the Gate and Liar's Poker and other kinds of books, which really get into the sometimes the nitty gritty of the deals. Although I think this gets into much more in the nitty gritty than even Barbarians at the Gate, which is really more about personalities and so forth. But most academics don't actually spend a lot of time understanding the, the mechanics of deals. I think maybe legal academics might spend a little more time. And I found them to be incredibly helpful in terms of understanding what really happens. Now, you're a former academic, and you wound up leaving academia to go into the world of practical banking at J.P. Morgan and then later into private equity. Did your background as an academic help you or, or hurt you as an investment banker and, and deal maker? Knowledge never hurts. So the more knowledge you have, the more help you get as you do whatever things that you do. But I think in academia, the major thing that you learn is really methodology. You know, you learn ways of thinking, ways of uh, doing analysis, and that comes handy in almost every profession that you get into. But in my training, I also spent some time at uh, the law school of uh, University of San Francisco. I studied contract law. That comes very handy in business. Every deal we do, of course, you start with the term sheet. A proposal, then you negotiate the term sheet, then you turn that into a definitive document. You have a team of counsel lawyers helping you with documentation. But if you're clueless about the contract law, then it is very difficult to put together a term sheet and to understand the implications of various terms. So all of those things, all the knowledge is helpful in business. Now, you, you also mentioned in your book that you thought maybe academics could benefit from having some experience in the real world. And most academics, particularly in, in business school and finance, begin teaching without having a lot of background. Oh, do you think that you would make a better professor now if you went back into the, the field, given the amount of experience that you have? Yes and no. When it comes to theory, of course, I'm horribly outdated. I have not read the literature in the past 20 years, and therefore I don't know what the latest is. But when it comes to practical experiences, how to apply theory to practical things, then I think I'm much better prepared today than when I was teaching at the Wharton School. I used to joke that if you don't know how to do it, you just preach it, <laughs> you just teach it. <laughs> but I think in retrospect, it is helpful to have some practical experience behind you, especially if you teach, for example, MBA students who typically have a lot of work experience behind them. So you have much better or you have a common language to talk about the issues with them. Now, you're working in primarily in the world of, of private equity. And, and I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about private equity. Uh, a lot of people think of it as uh, kind of a, a branch of finance, and they think that it's primarily about financial engineering. But I think you, you quote Henry Kravis, who said, any idiot can buy a company. It's what happens afterwards. I tell my finance students that the best finance class they can take is, is one in, in strategy. What you do is you turn around companies. You change the way they ma they're managed, you change the, their operations. So is private equity really a branch of finance or is it a branch of management more, more generally? I think it's all of the above. You refer to Barbarians and the Gate. And that book, and many books on private equity, deal with the deal-making part 
of the process of how private equity actually create value for investors. Barbarians at the Gate was written, was published in 1989, one year after the deal was put together. But I think KKR stayed in that business for about 15 years before they completely exited. And of course, the book made no reference to what happened afterwards because the book was written too soon. And there are other books of this nature, all written by journalists looking from outside. And Money Games that I published last year is the only book to cover private equity, a major story of private equity deal from beginning to the end, meaning from investment to turning around the institution to exiting from the investment. Of course, made a lot of money out of it. So the name of the game is not so much financial engineering, which is important, but how you actually create value by improving the business, by growing the business, by turning around the business over time. And for the bank we acquired, it took us five years. And the bank failed, nationalized by the government, and we acquired control from the government. So a lot of the work was done after the investment was made to turn around the institution. I still remember, as I refer to in my book, when the final agreement to acquire the bank was signed, I called David Bunderman, founder of TPG and co-chairman of Newbridge Capital, where I was, where we acquired this bank. I told him, I said, David, we finally signed after many, many months of negotiation. And he said, congratulations. Now the hard part starts. So after so many months, we were only starting the hard part. The hard part was general management, as you refer to, was to manage the business, growing the business, and improving the business. And that is how private equity, in essence, create value. And some people get lucky. You buy probably at a good time in the market, you sell at a good market, without doing too much work. But I think by and large, private equity outperforms public market by adding value, by creating value, by improving the businesses that we acquire. Well, it's very hard to imagine you working any harder than you were working during the acquisition period, as you describe in the book. But I think we should need to go back in time to the time of the financial crisis, the Asian financial crisis. Just before that, when I was in grad school, I think everyone was very admiring of the Asian miracle of what was happening in South Korea, what was happening in in Thailand and Malaysia and Singapore, following in the footsteps of what happened in, in Japan. And people were in some ways envious of the industrial policy that these countries were using to promote growth. I think at the time, very few people realized the, the brittleness of those policies. And when you showed up and took a look at the bank, I think you found that there was a lot of corporatist organization of the Korean economy had, had a lot of weaknesses. And of course, I think a lot of those have been changed since then. But could you describe a little bit about what you encountered? How were businesses, particularly how were banks being run pre-acquisition, pre-financial crisis? Yes, I think you will have to go back to 1950s, right after the Korean War, when Korea first started to build the economy. And in 1970s, President Park Chung-hee became the president of the country through a military coup d'etat. He ruled until 1979 when he was assassinated. During that time, or in the 1950s, right after the war, Korea was a very poor country, probably among the poorest in the world. So there was no capital. The savings rate was very low. So Korea developed itself by borrowing a lot of foreign debt. And the government was rationing debt to industries and businesses, which they think would help the country industrialize, help the country to develop. So in 1950s, actually in 1957, Korea nationalized. All the banks were nationalized so that they could lend in accordance with government policies, favoring this industry or favoring that particular business, such as Daewoo, Hyundai, Samsung, and so forth. So Korean economy before 1997 Asian financial crisis was built very much with foreign debt. And in 1997, the average debt to equity ratio in the United States was about 78%. And in Korea, the average was 300%. For tables, that is large conglomerates, like Samsung, Daewoo, and Hyundai, the average debt equity ratio, debt to equity ratio was 500%. So the country was hugely 
overlevered. The businesses were overlevered. Of course, the banking system was stretched to help these businesses. Now, what happened in 1997 was there was a capital flight triggered by devaluation of currencies around Asia, starting on July the second in Thailand with the devaluation Thai baht. In the year of 1997, Korean won dropped 69.5 percent against U.S. dollar. That is, two thirds of its value was wiped out in one year. The stock market dropped 49 percent. Think about it. With this kind of financial crisis, of course, you would expect all the capital to flee the country. So there was a huge flight of capital. By the end of the year, Korea, which was the tenth largest economy in the world, a member of OECD, had only 8.9 billion dollars in foreign exchange reserves left. The entire country, the central bank, had 8.9 billion dollars left to pay its foreign debt. My firm PAG today manages 40 billion dollars, right? And a country, tenth largest economy, had only less than nine billion dollars. So you can imagine the magnitude of the crisis. So with the flight of capital, obviously banks were no longer able to roll over loans to firms, so they had to get the money back. The firms with so much debt were no longer able to pay back the debt, and that was the start. Of the collapse of the banking system in Korea, and that was the background of the story I told in Money Games. So the banking system was really the start of the financial crisis, economic crisis in Korea during the '97, '98 Asian financial crisis. So prior to the renationalization of First Korea Bank and the other banks, even though they were private, they they really weren't being run as commercial enterprises fully. They were still Being run subject to political pressure, subject to non-profit maximizing considerations. Be fair to say, correct. And your transformational goal was to convert them into truly independent commercial enterprises. The correct way of doing banking is, of course, looking at the credit worthiness of the borrower. You don't lend to somebody who is incapable of paying you back. So there was lack of credit culture in Korea, which was chiefly responsible. For the failure of so many banks, about 150 banks failed in 97, 98 in Korea. Think about it. That's a huge number of banks for Korea, which had only about 40 million people in population. So that was a problem which IMF and the World Bank and the Korean government realized by the end of 97. So when IMF came to the rescue of Korea at the end of 97 with a 58 billion dollar Rescue package. They impose the condition. You know, as usual in those days, IMF would impose austerity measures on the government. But one particular condition was for the government to sell both nationalized banks to foreign investors, specifically to foreign investors. Now, prior to that time, the government didn't want foreign investors to come to Korea to buy control of businesses, let alone banks, because again, the government played the role of rationing. Money, rationing loans to、um, enterprises, so they didn't want foreigners to benefit from it. But because there was a lack of credit culture within Korea, it was very difficult to build one without borrowing it from foreign sources, and that is why IMF imposed this condition that you will have to sell the banks to foreign investors, who presumably would bring in the necessary credit culture, and that was the reason. Why they decided to sell these banks to foreign investors, and that was the start of the change in how banking is done in Korea. Well, not only was it relationship based and subject to government direction, but there's quite a bit of opacity. I, I recall seeing stories around the same time when other Western companies were going in to try and acquire or bail out or merge with Korean companies, and they found that the accounting was just a complete mess, and that oftentimes the knowledge about the company's business was all contained in more or less in the head of the founder. So you had to completely transform the way that they tracked the inflows and outflows and the value of the different loans in the, in the portfolio, right? That was true. In comparison with the international best practices, of course, Korea was somewhat behind. But we are investors in Asia. We invest in different Asian countries, different economies. I was doing that when I was at Newbridge Capital when this story took place, 
and later we changed the name of our firm to TPG Asia. And I left TPG Asia in 2010, and now I'm chairman and CEO of PAG. Throughout my private equity career, I have invested in different Asian countries. So not only in Korea, but also in China, in Japan, in Southeast Asia, in India, in Australia. I think. Even though Korea's accounting standard was not up to international best practices, Korea's standard was much better than China. China was even further behind in that particular regard. So in '98, Korea started to adopt international accounting standard, especially for banking. You know, in banking, there are different ways of classifying loans.、It、used to be the case, as long as a loan is performing, you would classify the loan as being normal, even though perhaps the business is getting worse and worse. So five years when the loan matures. This business no longer exists. So the international best practice at the time would require that you classify a loan on forward-looking basis. So Korea started to adopt forward-looking type of accounting classification loans only in 1998, and China probably in 2003. So Korea was still quite ahead of other Asian countries in this regard. But you're right. At the time, the accounting standard was still. Not up to the standard, so to speak. I'm wondering if you could comment on the current state of Chinese banking. Do you see any parallels there in terms of the the way in which the Chinese banking system operates? In other words, is it subject to levels of state、uh, support, state interference? Do you think that the accounting standards of the Chinese banks now are are up to snuff? I, I like to think, I, as an outsider, I tend to think that Ant Financial has the has the the best banking business in, in all of China. And I know you've been acquiring banks in China in Shenzhen Bank. Where is China right now in in that spectrum of transparency? The state affairs of Chinese banking during the Asian financial crisis was very similar to that of Korea. It's not very different. Lending was based on government policies and sometimes relationships. But China reformed its banking system around 2003 and 2005 during that time period. It was at that time we at Newbridge, later TPG Asia, as we rebranded ourselves, acquired control of Nationwide Bank in China, called Shenzhen Development Bank. So since that time, all the Chinese banks were reformed. They carved out the bad loans. They recapitalized them, but more importantly, they brought in foreign investors, such as Bank of America, such as Goldman Sachs, such as Tomasek, such as private equity firms like ourselves. We bought control of particular bank. The difference between Korea in 1997 and China in 2005, when China did the banking reform, was that. In Korea, the government was forced to take foreign capital. They were very reluctant to do, it, but it didn't have capital at that time. As I said, the foreign exchange reserves came down to about less than nine billion dollars at the end of 1997. So there was no choice. They had to bring in foreign capital to recapitalize many of those banks. And China had the highest savings rate in major economies, among major economies in the world, at about 50% of GDP. So China is a capital-rich country. It remains so today, and that's why China can invest about 45% of GDP year after year in the past 10 years. So capital was not an issue for China, but international best practices were an issue, and therefore. The regulators, China Banking Regulatory Commission, made it a rule that every bank will have to bring in foreign investors, especially strategic foreign investors, financial institutions. So Citibank went in, Bank of America went in, Goldman Sachs went in, and so forth. Today, all the major Chinese banks are publicly listed, and they are very well capitalized. Bad loans happen from time to time. But bad loan ratio is very modest, about one and a half percent, and bad loan coverage ratio has been about 150 percent. So at this particular moment, the Chinese banking system is quite healthy and rather resilient. Now you mentioned that when you entered Korea, the system was built in large part on relationships, and yet you went in there without any relationships. You went in there more or less blind and had to forge partnerships. You had to build trust. You had to、um, overcome quite a bit of resistance, not just by the public, but certainly by elements within the government and、uh, other folks in, in industry. How were you able to do that? It's really quite remarkable, and I would say that in terms of the amount of patience you had to display. While I was reading the book, pretty much every chapter, I was thinking, 
I would be driven absolutely nuts by, by all of the frustrations that you had to encounter. And yet throughout the book, at least the way you describe it, you just maintained a constant level of patience and, and fortitude. So how did you build those relationships and overcome that relationship culture? Relationship is really a substitute for trust. In a country where information is not instantly available and you don't know enough about your counterparties, of course, relationship would help you navigate in the marketplace. You do businesses with people who you know. But when you deal with the government, it's not so much of the relationship that really mattered at the time. It was the trust that you need to build. Of course, the Koreans were very skeptical of foreign investors who came in during the depths of financial crisis, and they were very much afraid, justifiably so, that the foreign investors would take advantage of the situation and get too good a deal from the government. So they were very careful when negotiating with us. And that was why it took so long. There was so much back and forth between the two parties. And I'll just give you one particular example to illustrate how we build trust. Just one of the examples. I realized the government was very reluctant to say yes to any of the proposals that we made for fear that they would make a mistake. And then, you know, they would have to be responsible for the mistake. So I offered a full refund policy in such a way that if we make a proposal, if they say yes, then later, if they discover that they made a mistake, they had the right to say no again, that is to retract. Whereas if we say yes, we would not have such a right. Our word is gold, is binding. Why did I do that? Uh, when we lived in the United States, every holiday I would buy some gifts for my wife, like her birthday or Christmas and so forth. Very often, whatever I bought, she didn't like, but it was okay. She appreciated my gesture and she would bring the merchandise back to the shops for a refund which was possible, of course, in the United States. We moved to Hong Kong in 1993. And in Hong Kong, shops have a no refund policy. No exchange, no refund policy. So I stopped buying gifts from my wife because if I make a mistake, instead of buying her love, she would uh, be very upset. <laughs> of course, the more money I spent, the more she would be upset. So I realized that uh, a full refund policy is a very good policy to allow consumers to make decisions without having to worry about uh, negative consequences. And that's what we offered to the Korean government. It actually worked. On two occasions, they realized that uh, the terms were not as good as uh, they would have liked, and they came back. On one occasion, actually, we, we made a mistake, and the mistake was in our favor. So we traded those terms, we changed those terms, and that's how you build trust because we were not there to take advantage of anyone. And we have to be able to explain why we do certain things. And over time, you build a trust. And that, I think, paves way for a big transaction, especially with the government. Mm -hmm. That reminds me, that was one of two moments where I think your character was revealed. There was one moment where someone on your team accused you of assuming lecturer mode and were not listening, and you re realized that he was right. And so you went back and retracted your perspective and retreated from lecturer mode. And there was another moment when you were in kind of deadlock in negotiations towards the end and, and you had um, your team had a, a brainstorm about approaching the negotiations from a very different perspective. To what do you attribute those kinds of successes and those kinds of, of discoveries? Is there a kind of humility that you have to have an ability to listen when you're in these negotiations to understand what other people are looking for and what are the things that their concerns well, in private equity investments, and almost in every business, I think, success is based on two things. Of course, your experience, your hard work, and so forth. That is yourself, what you can put into a deal. But a large part is luck. You know, in the financial crisis, everybody is out of luck. And when the market is booming, everybody makes money. Very often, when somebody has done something successful, that is, for example, you have made a lot of money by buying a stock, it gets into people's head. They think it's all about themselves. They made the right decision. They have the best judgment. So they are able to make so much money when, in fact, they do not think that a large factor is luck. So when you become arrogant, then inevitably you would fall. It is very important to be able to listen to different opinions, different views. And to be humble, to understand it's not just you. 
you know, there's a luck and there is different points of view. So I think that's very important. If you're not able to accept different views, then it's very easy to fail in investments. Now, there's a moment in the book Money Games that brought me back to the previous book, Out of Gobi. You were doing an all-night negotiation in the hotel and you ordered room service. And I think it, it occurred to you that this was kind of an amazing thing that you could just get food more or less 24 hours a day just by lifting up the phone. And that made you think of your days back in Gobi Desert where you endured tremendous hardship. You were basically a slave for six years in the desert. And in that book too, I was just astonished at your capacity for enduring things, which you knew were absurd in many ways. So it's not simply the being forced to labor and so forth, but to be forced to labor for things that you knew were more or less pointless, right? Planting more potatoes than you could harvest. Did your experiences in the Gobi help you to become successful in any way? Not that I would recommend anyone endure this, <laughs> for character building or success purposes, but what sorts of lessons did you learn from your years of suffering in the desert that helped you to succeed later in life? I think once you have experienced the hardship, you appreciate whatever you have. Everything that I've had after the Gobi was or has been a bliss. And you talk about food. The hardest thing when I was working as a hard laborer in the Gobi desert was starvation. And that was the hardest hardship that I can imagine. So we would not know where and when the next meal would be when I was there. And that was why I was quite amazed working on this transaction in Korea. We were camped out in the Sheila Hotel in Seoul. And you could order room service 24 hours a day at any time. And I kept marveling. Uh, you know, how easy the food was available at the time. So you appreciate everything. I think that uh, you also learn that nothing can be tougher. <laughs> and therefore, <laughs> even though the negotiation process, as I described in the book, was really tough, and there were many setbacks, there were many frustrations, uh, you learn to be patient, you learn to persevere, you learn never to give up. Now, if we reflect on that time uh, in Chinese history with Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution, I think in another talk you gave at uh, UC Berkeley a few years back, you mentioned that this part of Chinese history is not well known to a lot of people in China today. In other words, if they hadn't lived through it. Do you think that this is something that people need to know more about? Do you think that there's a way to make people more aware of their history in China and among Chinese people around the world? I certainly hope so. I think for those who really want to study history, really want to understand history, they will be able to learn. But in the popular culture, you know, that part of the experience, that part of history has largely disappeared. The younger generation, I would say people 45 years old or below, probably have very little interest to know what happened during that period of time when people starved and some starved to death when the country was in extreme poverty. So it's good to know that part of history, lest we forget the lesson and go back to the old days. See, China was a very poor country before economic reform started. And today there's misperception, I think both in China and especially in Western countries, that China developed because of government policies, because the government controlled all the economic activities. That is the furthest from the truth because the centrally planned system didn't produce economic prosperity, didn't produce economic prosperity in China, neither did it in the Soviet Union or the USSR. It produced only poverty. The centrally planned system produced not enough to feed its own people. And that is, in China developed in the past 40 years by embracing a market economy, by embracing private enterprises, by opening its door to foreign investments by sending students offshore in foreign countries to study. So that's how China developed so rapidly. The system itself unleashed productivity. Without knowing where China was, you don't understand where China is today. And that's why I think it is important for people to appreciate what we went through and the hardship we went through and how the old system was so bad that it produced nothing but poverty for the country. When we look back on some of the policies associated with the Great Leap Forward, you know, where people were melting their cooking pots in order to support the steel initiative, when people were 
trying to convert the desert into fertile territory, even though the locals were highly dubious. What does this say of people's willingness to believe and willingness to ignore evidence or ignore facts? I think in your book, one of the things that I found one of the incidents which I found almost very remarkable and unbelievable was when you tried to write a letter to Chairman Mao telling Chairman Mao that the policies in the Gobi were misguided. Why did you think that would make a difference? I, w- I was wondering. I was naive. It didn't make any difference. <laughs> you mean by writing the letter? Of course, it didn't well, make Well, not any- only by writing the letter. I think you also had attempted to have conversations with, with your leader, with the, the manager of your camp about the policies they were implementing. At Haas, we have a, at Berkeley, we have a, a motto, which is question the status quo. And it seemed like you were questioning the status quo even then when it was not always the, the safest thing to do. Correct. But it was futile. You know, whatever efforts that we made, we probably could make some difference at the margin, but not fundamentally because the system was wrong. It was centrally controlled system. We were organized almost like uh, an army. So you have to obey whatever the leaders told you, even though very often their decisions made absolutely no sense, like trying to grow rice in the Gobi Desert. <laughs> if you think about it, who in his right mind would think that way? But you couldn't break out of the system. And therefore, whatever suggestions that you make would not make any difference. Now, in the market economy, of course, people make mistakes all the time. Some people are successful, other People are not so successful. Some businesses succeed, some business fail. But the good thing about the market economy is a metabolism, right? Bad things are flushed out, good things become successful, and therefore whatever exists must have a very good reason to exist. Whatever exists must be good. So you have to allow that system to flush out the bad and to keep the good. And under the old system, in China, that is the centrally planned system, everything had to exist, good or bad, and therefore you couldn't break out of it. And that's why that system before 1980s was such a failure. Now, some people would argue that companies are, are just smaller versions of centrally planned economies. And some of the weaknesses of centrally planned economies will make their way into these larger corporations. So if you're managing a large corporation, how do you overcome some of these problems where you are resistant in many ways to the forces of of the market, where you can shelter yourself in some ways from the forces of the market? You don't. In fact, within a company, a centrally planned system is more efficient than a democratic system within a company. Just think about it. If you have five-person committee to make every management decision, then your company is not going to be very efficient. If you have a good leader making all the decisions, like Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan, the company does very well. The checks and balance comes not from within the company, but from without the company. If the company doesn't do well, you will not survive in competition. If you have a bad leader, the company would fail in the marketplace. So within the company, you would not want to have a democratic system, but there has to be a boundary how large the company can be. Paul of Chicago famously created the transaction cost economics, looking at the increase in transaction costs internally when the organization becomes too large. And that is when inefficiency creeps in. So there has to be a boundary how large the organization is. But that boundary shifts over time as market conditions shift. So again, back to your question, I don't think it makes sense to have democratic system within the management of a company, but obviously you need a free market economy so that the market itself will be able to get rid of bad players or underperformers. And the market itself is a place where it is the survival of the fittest. Now, I think other people would argue that with the rise of big data and with the ability to manage data from disparate sources, the central planning is potentially going to come back and it's going to come back and and be better than before. We're going to sustain larger companies, the the Chinese government, for instance. A lot of people think that the policies of the Chinese government, which may involve greater degrees of control, may be more successful now because of the amount of data and the ability to, to process and manage to process that data in ways that you couldn't do back in the 1970s. 
Do you think there's any logic to that argument? I've heard of that argument. It appears to be logical on the surface, but you take a step into that argument, you will find that it makes no sense at all. Why? Of course, if you have all the data, you can analyze the data, you use AI and so forth, you probably will be able to make decisions much more efficiently than leaving it to a committee to make an argument that I just made. Where do you get the data if you don't have a market? You know, let's say if in the extreme case, you have a 100% centrally planned system like China had before 1980s, then how do you know that people all of a sudden like a new product like iPhone? How do you know that <laughs> to create an iPhone, right? That demand was created by Steve Jobs himself. It's a product that never existed. So without a market, you will not be able to get any data. It is when there were thousands of iPhone makers or mobile phone makers who create all different kinds of products and try to sell them to consumers, then you will be able to collect data to know what they like. And they like iPhone, but not Motorola. You know, they like a particular phone, particular color, but not uh, another color. And that's how you find out data. So without a market economy, you won't have any data. And therefore, you can't have a centrally planned economy based on data when you don't have a market economy, then it becomes tautology. So you have to have a market economy and to argue that data would allow you to operate the centrally planned economy without regard to market is total nonsense. It's like uh, water without the source. I think Brezhnev said that he wanted to conquer the entire world except for Chicago. So the Chicago Board of Trade could still provide all the, the pricing data. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> so when you came to the United States, you're one of the first Chinese students to come to the U.S. from the People's Republic. And you came to San Francisco and you came to Berkeley. And you recounted how when you came to Berkeley and you walked down the street, people approached you and offered you copies of the Little Red Book, Mao's Little Red Book, and started preaching communism on the street. That sounded like an interesting encounter. Can you tell us about that? Well, that's why in that particular chapter, actually the title of that particular chapter was or is People's Republic of Berkeley. <laughs> Berkeley is very progressive and very left. And when I first arrived, I was very astonished to find that there was a big red banner hanging over the top floor of the library, reading all things reactionary are the same, where the broom doesn't reach, the dust doesn't read of itself. Chairman Mao. <laughs> so it's a Mao's quotation. I was very surprised to, to see that. I came all the way from China, where the Cultural Revolution was already becoming a distant memory. And to this America, the beacon of freedom, then I see Chairman Mao's quotation. It was no stage, but Berkeley is a great place. It allows different views to flourish. It allows people to debate about uh, different points of views. And that is great. I think what is not so good in the days of the Cultural Revolution, only one point of view was allowed. And that's not good. In a democracy, even if some people hold extreme views, that is okay as long as all the different views are permitted to clash with each other and to conflict with each other. I think people ultimately have the good judgment to pick what is right for them. As first-hand memories of the Cultural Revolution begin to recede in China, do you think that people are forgetting the lessons of the experience, maybe romanticizing the experiences and um, forgetting the lessons that they should be thinking about with respect to what happened then? Uh, some people do, especially those who have not experienced it. That's why I think my book is important. And is your book selling well in China? Do you have a yeah. Chinese edition? Uh, yes, it has the Chinese edition. It was published last year in Hong Kong and uh, has been selling very well. The uh, version for Men in China hopefully will be published this year. See, outside of China, the Chinese characters are a little different, what we call traditional characters. And within China, it's simplified characters. So they have to be different versions. Now, look, there's been a lot of activity in Hong Kong the last couple of years a lot of discussion about whether the, the special economic region is going to be dissolved and made more like mainland China. Do you see that happening? Do you see the specialness of Hong Kong fading over time? Or do you think that this is something that the Chinese government would never allow? 
Absolutely not. Hong Kong is not only a special economic region. Hong Kong is a special political region, and it is called special administrative region. And Hong Kong is a very open and free society. In Hong Kong, there's of course freedom of speech, freedom of press, and Hong Kong is so open. Actually, it's more open than any of the open economies, open societies that we know of. In Hong Kong, all the imports. Are not subject to any tariffs at all. You don't find another economy in the world <laughs> by that nature, a major economy. And anybody, you yourself, Greg, can come to Hong Kong, find a job, and then you get a work permit. Now, if somebody in Hong Kong wants to get a job on Wall Street, it will be very difficult to get a permanent residence. Hong Kong is very open. Hong Kong has an independent judicial system. Which has not changed. The final appeals court has 22 judges. 16 of them are foreigners. Actually, 14 of them are non-Chinese foreigners, Anglo-Saxon foreigners from Commonwealth countries. And Hong Kong judges still wear powdered wig, you know, as the British judges do. So the legal system is very independent. And in Hong Kong, you can criticize the government almost every day. Today the budget is out, and I read the newspaper. It's filled with, which is good. I think Hong Kong will remain a free society going forward. And we all talk about the the Great Wall of China, the Great Data Wall, which has fostered the development of completely separate large tech companies, Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. And those are amazing companies. I've done some work with some of them, and yet. Part of their strength comes from the barrier to entry against the American tech firms. Do you see that wall persisting, or do you see ultimately China integrating itself into the global economy in a more complete way? When it comes to the wall, it's more of a information wall as opposed to be a wall with regard to economic activities. If you look at big companies like Baidu, like Alibaba, like Tencent, most of their shareholders. Are foreign investors, are foreigners. But when it comes to censorship on the internet, there are certain requirements that the likes of、uh, Google and FaceTime choose not to comply. You know, good for them to take that position. So they would rather get out of that market. They used to be in that market. They would rather get out of the market than to comply with certain rules. And that is very unfortunate. But that's reality on the ground in China. Of course, there's a censorship. You know, there's certain information control that the government deems to be harmful to what they consider to be security issues. But in Hong Kong, you don't have such an issue. I'm talking about mainland China when it comes to the Great Firewall. I think it would be hard for you to read the Wall Street Journal without using VPN. But people do use VPN to scale the wall, to climb the wall. But in Hong Kong, everything is very open. So, question about the finances. You mentioned that China has the highest savings rate in the world,、uh, and part of that is cultural, of course. But part of it's also part of government policy. For the last thirty years, China has been exporting capital, even though it's an emerging country. Do you see that changing anytime soon? Do you see the? I know you mentioned that culturally things are changing, and young people aren't saving. Quite as much as their elders, but with government foreign exchange policies in place, I expect that Chinese will continue to save quite a bit. Do you see that changing? Do you see government policy loosening up on the monetary side? Greg, it raises two points. One has to do with the savings rate and why the savings rate of China is so high. The other has to do with what you call export capital. On the first point. The savings rate has very little to do with the government policy. The government wants people to save less and spend more because China is trying to drive its economy with private consumption. It has been very difficult to encourage people to spend more. The reason for that is China is just not as socialist as the United States, in the sense that the United States has a social security system, has Medicare, Medicaid, and so forth, so that people. You、don't have to worry so much about a safety net. Whereas in China, the social security system is still being built; it is underfunded. But more importantly, is undefined how much money you need to contribute into the social security system in China. But you have no idea how much you can get out of it. You know, it's undefined, and therefore, to most people, there's no social safety net. And such being the case, 
Now, China has achieved universal healthcare coverage by now. It used to be the case that was lacking. So, such being the case, people, especially of my generation, tend to always save for a rainy day. Once you have experienced starvation, you always worry that the starvation will come back. So you don't want to spend. It's just like you're burned by the stock market. You're very reluctant to get back into the stock market for a long time to come. Next generation is very different. That is, people under the age of 40, they spend beyond their means before they make money. They borrow to spend money. So that's about savings. But China's savings rate is going to drop precipitously because people, my generation, when we retire, then Chinese population will age precipitously because of one-child policy. My generation, on average, everybody has three siblings, the next generation one. So when this generation retires, all of a sudden, the population ages and savings rate will drop. With regard to exporting capital, that's an economic issue. Some people say it's exporting capital. I happen not to agree with that particular view. China has been generating a twin surplus on its balance payment. And one is, of course, the trade account surplus. And China exports more than it imports for a long time. Until very recently, China still enjoys a very large trade surplus with the United States. But with the rest of the world, like Germany, Australia, Japan, Korea, China generates a large trade deficit. So when you have a trade surplus, then you will have to wonder where to invest that capital. China has also enjoyed a large inflow of foreign direct investment, foreign capital. Last year, China has become the largest recipient of foreign direct investment, surpassing that of the United States. In the United States, FDI dropped last year, and China went up last year because, of course, the Chinese economy performed better last year. So in my view, it's not so much exporting the capital, but to invest the surplus of current account. And that is coming to an end because now China's current account surplus is just about 1%. Last year, it went up slightly more because the rest of the world was struggling and China's economy was still growing. I think last year, it went up probably about 2% of the current account. That is the surplus. But normal years, it should be just 1% or less. So that surplus is disappearing. And now the flow is the opposite direction, that is, capital flow into China. Again, it has become the largest FDI recipient, but more significantly, China has become a large recipient of portfolio capital, stock market, bond market. Why? The interest rate differentials, let's say for 10-year government bonds, between China and the United States, is about four times. For U.S. Treasury bills, it's about 1%. For Chinese government bond, it's about 4%. So the interest rate differential is very attractive. Last year, the Chinese currency, RMB, appreciated against the dollar by about 6.5%. So think about an investor based in the United States as institutional investor. You see such a large interest rate differential. You see the currency gaining strength. Obviously, a lot of capital flows into China. And therefore, I think that uh, idea of surplus capital going offshore is outdated somewhat. And you mentioned at one point in your life that you, you wanted to read every book ever written. And when you were in the Gobi, you read anything you could get your hands on. I was delusional. <laughs> <laughs> so I presume that you, you, you abandoned that ambition at one point when you discovered how many books there, there really were outside of the Gobi. But education is something that you've always taken very seriously and you've tried to get as much education as possible. And I think that after your generation suffered a huge education deficit in China now, there's a hunger for education and the education sector is growing very rapidly and the private education sector is, is very powerful. But a lot of people would say that education in China is, is focused too much on test taking, the tradition of the Mandarin exam. Do you think that the, the Chinese educational system can at one point get to the point where it's importing academics as opposed to right now in the US, we're importing academics from China and elsewhere? I think that it is true. The Chinese education methodology is very mechanical. It's very much memory-based. When children go to primary school or starting from kindergarten and primary school, they are required to memorize a lot of things, poems, mathematics, everything. 
So by the time they graduate from high school, I would say the average Chinese student is much better trained than the average American student. But this kind of methodology does limit creativity, because children are not so much encouraged to be creative, and therefore you see the difference. I was teaching at the Wharton School, of course, I taught at、uh, different levels: undergraduate, graduate school, and even PhDs. You could see that when Chinese students get into college, their creativity is much more limited than American students. In America. Is much more of a self-selection system. The high school education may not be as rigorous as in China, but for those kids who really would like to study, who tackle AP subjects, they can do very well. So if they're selected to go to, let's say, Ivy League schools, they are much more creative than an excellent student from China who has not been trained in that tradition. So I think. That is the reason why so many Chinese choose to go to America to study today. America has about three hundred seventy thousand Chinese students in U.S. campuses, and of course, the Chinese students also go to Australia, go to Europe, go to Japan to study. And that reflects that difference in academic methodology. But things are changing somewhat. When I went to America in nineteen eighties. I would say 80% of the students who went over there will not come back to China. I didn't. You know, I spent、uh, 30 years in the United States and became a professor over there. Today, I would say 80% of the students who graduated will come back to China. I actually polled the professionals in PAG's office, and they told me this particular number. Why? Because there are more opportunities to become very rich <laughs> in China. And for software engineer, the pay in China is higher than in the United States. So today, China has more billionaires than the United States, but China outpaces the United States three to one by minting billionaires. You know, we have invested in companies which created billionaires, and it is very much possible. For example, we invested a few years ago in a company called China Music Corporation, which is similar as Spotify. We put in hundred million dollars. We own about fifty percent of the company. Now the company was merged with、uh, QQ Music of Tencent, and it rebranded itself into Tencent Music Entertainment. It is listed on New York Stock Exchange with a market cap of forty-five billion dollars. Just think how many billionaires that we minted by investing in that particular company. So, given this kind of opportunities. There is a reverse brain drain into China to take advantage of the opportunities to get very wealthy. Whereas 30 years ago, the brain drain was in the other direction. You went from wanting to read every book in the world; you had to give that one up. But I bet you didn't expect to be an author of two books that everyone else wants to read. These are fantastic books. I recommend them to everybody. Money games for an inside view of a real deal, a real private equity acquisition. And out of the Gobi, which is,、uh, I think, a seminal text in the history of modern China. There need to be more books like this one, memoirs that describe those days while the memory is still there. Thank you, Sean, for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www. dot unsiloedpodcast. dot com.